Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 4. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 4. I'm going to read the first four verses of this chapter. Hear now God's word. If you return to me, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Let's pray together. Jesus, these are very hard words to hear. They're very hard words to understand and apply and obey. And so I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would give us special grace to receive them and to live by them. And I pray that you would change us as a church body. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Jeremiah chapter 4, which means we're still in Jeremiah's street corner sermon. He's gone down to Jerusalem and he's standing on a street corner and he's preaching this message of repentance. We started this three weeks ago before Easter and we said there's two parts to this message on repentance. We outlined the four steps involved in repentance according to Jeremiah and we're going to talk about them again today and they are these. Recognize, remove, resolve, rejoice. Recognize, remove, resolve, rejoice. Now, when we started three weeks ago, we kind of joked that we could only do one that Sunday, and then there would be a three-week break until we did the other three. And so if anyone wanted to come and to talk to me and hear the other three, we could have that conversation. And only one person from this church came and talked to me, which means the rest of us have been walking around with one quarter of the steps of repentance for the last three weeks. And that's just terrible to think about. Before we start, I want to point out something that can be a little bit confusing about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is preaching to a broad audience, which includes believers and unbelievers alike. Throughout his sermon, he is going to be doing both evangelism and discipleship at the same time. That means the discerning Christian, we need to take his words and weigh them against other words in Scripture. And here's a prime example in verse 4b. Look at the second half of verse 4. God says, Repent, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now, a Christian could hear that or read that, and it could send us into a tailspin, right? Because we could begin to think that I need to repent perfectly and immediately and timely and in a way that God wants me to, or else he's going to turn on me, as the passage says, and he's going to burn me. Christian, that is not true. Easter changes everything. 
If you are a believer, you are united to the risen and the reigning Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God. When you hear these words, particularly this verse, verse 4b, this is meant for the unbeliever. This is meant for a person who doesn't know God, who hasn't confessed and repented of their sins and turned to him. It is a warning to them and to the Christian who parades with that title, but there is absolutely no fruit in their life. This threat of judgment is not for a believer. That being said, we don't want to swing in the other direction and mute the prophet. We don't want to chalk this whole thing up to evangelism that's meant for other people and miss its discipling good for us. God calls every single Christian to repent and believe. By his power, we're going to throw off the entanglements of sin and we are going to grow more and more in our love for God. I think this is incredibly important for us to hear. Just because something hurts like crazy doesn't mean it isn't born in fresh gospel grace. Just because something in our Christian life hurts, it's a sacrifice, it's painful, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been born out of God's love for us in the gospel. The gospel can hurt too, as we're going to see. Well, here's the four steps. We said, number one, three weeks ago, I'll just mention it, it's to recognize. We talked about last time that recognition is a double recognition. That's what repentance is. It's to see our sin for what it is, and then it's to turn and to see God for who he is. So we do that. We do the recognition. And then number two, we'll talk about today, remove. Repentance, biblical repentance, is more than just saying, I'm sorry. With God's help, repentance means removing the temptation. Now, this is said very plainly in verse 1. Remove your detestable things from my presence. But it's also said poetically in verse 3. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Now, I think somewhere along the way, many of us have picked up the idea that real, serious, committed Christians, we can leave our environment the exact way that we found it and just promise ourselves that we're going to make better choices as we go forward. The Bible says that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense at all. The Bible is not naive. It doesn't assume that we can leave a temptation in front of ourselves and we can just press through and grit out some kind of obedience. Jeremiah says that would be like trying to sow seed on hard ground. That would be like casting your seed among thorns. We're not going to get very far. Wherever possible, we've got to remove the things and the places and the circumstances that tempt us. That is part and parcel of repentance. I think we've got to linger here. I think we have to spend time here, even though I don't want to spend time here, because this process of removal, it hurts. It reminds us that the gospel has teeth. 
We don't want the gospel to have teeth. Most days we want the gospel to find us where we are and to leave us where we are. We want a toothless gospel that doesn't leave any bite marks on us, right? We want a gospel that is going to maintain the status quo. Now, I've been reading a fascinating novel called American War, and it's set in the future, and it's a second civil war between the states, and this scene takes place in a southern refugee camp. You've got two refugees, they're talking to each other, and they're talking about how their last chaplain had been kicked out of the camp, and this is what one of them says. They don't let him in here no more. Too hot for their taste. Got some soft-boiled Baptist from Atlanta instead. I love that quote. I promise you, Jesus is not some soft-boiled status quo Baptist from Atlanta. He's probably not exactly a hard-boiled Presbyterian from Columbia either. Jesus stands and he says to every one of us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What can that possibly mean except that repentance means daily removal? It means cost. It means sacrifice for every single one of us who names the name of Christ. For some of us, that self-denial might mean certain places we go or certain habits that we have, or certain times of day. It might mean for us internet access, or an HBO series, or a Christian romance novel. It can be a boyfriend, it can be a friendship, it can be a dynamic at work, and God is calling us in our repentance to change, to tweak, to walk away from what we can. You know, honestly, sometimes I think the biggest obstacle to remove in our lives is secrecy. I think sometimes we find ourselves in situations or circumstances that we can't easily extricate ourselves from. We can't readily remove this relationship, this work dynamic, this place that we have to go and we have to be. And so the one obstacle we can remove in that situation is our secrecy of our sin, the fact that we're not telling another person about it. That's why life groups feature so largely in this church of what we mean by disciples making disciples. They are designed to be one less place in our lives where we can go and we can hide. All of this is to say repentance is less like saying I'm trying and it's more like saying I'm dying. It feels like I'm dying. It feels like I'm giving up something that has been so interwoven with me. I forget where I end and my sin begins. And God is calling me to remove, to rip, to tear this thing out of my life and my heart. And it doesn't feel like I'm trying. It feels like I'm dying. It feels like I'm saying with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20, we recognize our sin, we remove it, and then number three, we resolve. Verse one makes such a fantastically obvious point, I think it's easy for us to miss. 
If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, it is to me you should return. In other words, putting down sin is not the same thing as taking up Jesus. We can put to death a sin in our life. We can put aside a besetting temptation and a sin in our life. And we can fill that with all kinds of other things that aren't Christ. You know, when we went through this season of Lent, uh, a number of us gathered for a book study, John Piper's book on fasting. And I think we realized this principle very acutely because many of us were fasting over a mealtime and we realized you can do that. You can put aside food, the immediate idol of satisfaction for my hunger, but then you can find yourself just becoming busy over that lunchtime hour, right? You can just do more work because you're not eating lunch and you realize that fasting creates space, but you can turn around and fill that space with any other thing. If repentance means to turn, it ought to include not just turning from our sin, but truly turning towards the Lord. Now, Jeremiah says this shockingly. He's preaching on a street corner and he shouts to the people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Now, of course, every single Israelite that he was talking to had already been circumcised. Circumcision in Jeremiah's day, it is like baptism in our day. It is a sign of membership in a covenant community. And so this would have been shocking to hear. For Jeremiah to say, circumcise yourself, an Israelite would have said, I already am circumcised. What do you mean by that? And so Jeremiah, he clarifies graphically, this is not traditional circumcision. He says, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Recircumcision is like rebaptism. It's like a new beginning. Turn from your sin, God says, and imagine yourself to be baptized and follow me as if this was your first day of faith in the family of God. This is a new beginning. Your sins are clean. I want to be really careful here because I truly don't want to sound idealistic, and I'm afraid if I say this, some of us might think that. But I wonder how many of us are struggling with a particular spiritual habit in our life. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's reading scripture. Maybe it's leading our family in worship. Maybe it's doing some kind of ministry. And we are struggling with that because we are consciously withholding a part of our life from God. We've left a relationship or a thing or a place or a circumstance intact in our life, and the thing is like growing up like thorns around our hearts. Our hearts are our gardens, the Bible says, and removing thorns and weeds by God's power and his grace, it only makes them more fertile to grow the good things that he calls us to grow. Jeremiah goes even further than that in verse 2 when he says, If you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. To do this step of repentance as a Christian, that is to recognize and to remove and to resolve, that becomes attractive to the nations. Unbelievers, they see that 
And they want that because we have found something that satisfies the soul. We have found something that is more valuable to us than our sin. And we give that up so we can seize the one thing that will make us happy. You better believe that unbelievers are attracted to that. Number four, finally, I added rejoice. Rejoice is actually not mentioned in our passage, and it's not mentioned in this sermon of Jeremiah's in quite this way, because as we're going to learn, Israel does not repent of her sin. And where there is no repenting, there is no rejoicing. But if anybody hears this call, if your ears tingle when you hear the call to repent, whether this is the first time or the thousandth time you've heard this, that spark of life is not from you. It's from the Holy Spirit working in you, and that becomes a cause to rejoice. You hear this call, and you feel in yourself a want, a desire to respond, and that is a gift from God and a reason to rejoice. We can as Christians and as unbelievers coming to Christ rejoice in repentance. It hurts, but it is grounds for rejoicing. Now I want us to think about that and I want us to leave here with that theme of rejoicing. And so I want to give us a number of reasons to rejoice. I want to set us off with a few reasons to kind of prime the pump so that as we think, where do I even begin to rejoice in my repentance? We have some areas to go. I want to mention a few. I've got 19 of them, but I'm going to read them like really quickly. And so this gets us started in thinking how to rejoice in our repentance. Number one, rejoice that repentance is a mercy. It's a mercy from God to repent. Number two, rejoice that the smallest child in our family can learn to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Number three, rejoice that the Apostle John says that if there's anybody in this room that says they have no sin, that person is a liar. Number four, rejoice if you have a friend who's close enough to call you a liar. Number five, rejoice that the gospel has teeth, that the caged, toothless house cat of Christendom, that thing is an imposter, Jesus is a lion, and the gospel leaves bite marks. Six, rejoice that whatever we put down in this life, we will pick up a million fold in the life to come. Seven, Rejoice that we're not judged by how well we follow these four steps of repentance. Eight, rejoice that Jesus died for half-hearted repentance, for hypocrisy, for crossed fingers, and for empty words, that Jesus died even for people who make light of his death. Nine, Rejoice that the greater and uglier our sin appears, the more sweet the invitation to repent it will sound to our ears. Ten, rejoice that when we think we've sinned the same sin one too many times and that the cistern of grace has run dry for us, we realize it's not a cistern at all but a wellspring of living water as deep as divinity and as limitless as eternity. Eleven, 
rejoice that God is love and rejoice that love keeps no record of wrongs. Number 12, rejoice that Easter changes everything. 13, rejoice that repentance, it opens up this dynamic into a spiritual world where the devil is begging to sift us like wheat and Jesus is praying that we will hold fast and Jesus' praying is more powerful than the devil's begging and the father, he always hears his son. 14, Rejoice that sin and death, they've lost their sting. Fifteen, rejoice that it is often not our righteousness, but our repentance that makes Jesus more beautiful to our friends. Rejoice that repentance can convert the nations. Rejoice that repentance is new beginnings. Rejoice that in the new earth there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, which is another way to say there's going to be nothing left to repent of. And finally, rejoice that it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together. Jesus, our hearts are full. We have a world to rejoice in. And I pray that you would make us as a church, not just a repentant people who puts down our sin and takes up you, but a rejoicing people who can see mercy even in the pain of repentance. You can do that in our midst. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.